Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Yeah, we done now. Are, you, are we recording? Well, I mean, I, yeah, I'm still recording, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> you can talk no, to me normally. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Hello, and welcome to the World Cricket Show, the cricket world's favourite cricket show. My name is Adam Bayfield, and I'll be your host for all this evening's larking about. And this week, I'm all by myself again, I'm afraid. My regular sidekick, Tony Kerr, has only gone and swanned off to Paris, where he's currently stuffing his face with baguettes and croissants and butter, leaving me to carry the show on my own once again. It's very inconsiderate, this. I really think he needs to stop booking holidays when there's cricket on. Uh, although in fairness, that's always, isn't it? So I guess I'll have to let him off. I will be speaking to Tony on the phone a little bit later. But in the meantime, you're going to have to make do with just me. We can still have fun though, right? Yeah? Yes, we can. Uh, there's lots to talk about this week after an eventful Headingley Test match. So stick around. We will have some fun. Uh, but with Tony not here, it does give me an opportunity you know, to play around with the format of the show a little bit, retool a few things. We're thinking of introducing a brand new character for the summer run, maybe a love interest for one of us. Marissa Tomei has tested quite well with the focus groups, apparently, so, you know, she might make an appearance before the end of tonight's episode. I'm not saying definitely, but she might. You can't rule out the possibility that Marissa Tomei might make an appearance. I've been working on some new catchphrases as well, has he got an half? Seems to have gone mainstream. We got a tweet this week from Jack Hansel uh, with a photo of this month's All Out Cricket magazine, which was making a joke out of, has he got an half? Stealing our material, to be honest. I mean, technically they're stealing Nick Knight's material, which we stole. Uh, but still, I think you know what I mean. So, you know, that catchphrase is dead now. Uh, we need some new ones. So I've, I've gone away and I've tried to create some original ones. I've got uh, Lovely Jubbly, Am I Bothered? I don't believe it. It's taken me quite a while to come up with these, so um, hopefully they'll test just as well with the focus groups as Marissa Tomei has. So yeah, look out for those throughout the show. The other thing, with Tony not here, uh, is that he can't prevent me, he has literally no way of preventing me from performing a full rendition of Get Lucky. I know that's what you all want to hear. I've become more obsessed with that song than ever this week, and I'm planning to sing the whole thing from start to finish at the very end of this week's show. And if that's not a reason to keep listening, I don't know what is. England. This is the part of the show where we talk about England. Now, England sealed a 2-0 Test Series victory over New Zealand this week with a big win at Leeds. It was an eventful game, though. The whole of the first day was washed out. When play eventually started, England batted first after winning the toss. They got off to a bit of a rocky start when they were 67 for three, uh, but eventually were all out for 354. The main headline was a maiden test century for Joe Root on his home ground. He made 104 
Johnny Bairstow also on his home ground with quite a breezy 64. Uh, some late runs as well from Matt Pryor, 39. And they got up to what looked like a very competitive total despite Trent Bolt's 5 for 57. In response, New Zealand got off to a solid start when they were 55 without loss. But some brilliant bowling from Steve Finn, who took 3 for 36. And Graham Swan, 4 for 42 from 9 overs, meant that the Kiwis were eventually skittled out for just 174. England could have enforced the follow-on, but Alistair Cook elected not to. They batted again. There was an extremely scratchy innings from Nick Compton, who made 7 from 45 balls before getting out. And what could generously be described as a patient innings from Jonathan Trott, 76 from 164 balls. But that allied to Cook's 25th Test century, 130 he made, and some late hitting from Root and Bairstow uh, meant that they eventually declared on 287 for 5. That set New Zealand a notional target of 468. Obviously, they were never going to get there. Uh, the question was whether England could take all 10 wickets before the rain came down. Rain very much forecast for the final day. They managed to get six before the end of the fourth day. They needed four more on Tuesday. And the weather just about held off to allow them to eventually bowl the Kiwis out for 220. Swan taking six for 90 to wrap up the win by 247 runs. So a huge victory for England then. But apparently it wasn't enough as far as the press box was concerned. At any rate, the commentators on Sky and the BBC and journalists for all the newspapers have been falling over themselves to criticise Cook and the management team for failing to enforce the follow-on, for batting on too long in the second innings, for setting New Zealand far more runs than they needed to, for batting too slowly in getting to that target, and for setting negative fields in the fourth innings when they were pushing for a win. Basically, they've been criticised for not winning more quickly or more ruthlessly than they did. And I'll tell you what, it's been making me downright cross, that reaction, uh, and I'll get into why in a bit. But to get an insight into what's going on here, uh, I realised that what I needed to do was to speak to a real expert in the field of knee-jerk punditry, a real expert in the field of not thinking things through before making sweeping statements. There was only one man I could call, and that man, of course, is Tony Kerr. Now, earlier today, I spoke to him on the phone. He was in the airport in Paris, about to board a flight to Porto in Portugal, where he's going to a music festival. And here's what he had to say. Tone? How's it going? How's it going with you? Not too bad, thanks. Not too bad. Should I say bonjour? <laughs> uh, yeah, bonjour. Bonjour, monsieur. Ça va? Ah, ça va bien, merci. Et vous? Et toi? <laughs> Sorry, not <laughs> et vous. Come on. Sorry? Not et vous. Come on. Et, et toi? Et tu? Et vous. I'm just, uh, just hanging out in uh, the airport at the moment. Are you? Were you in the departure lounge? Uh, no, well, no, I'm not through yet. Logistically, no, no, no. Financially, it was it was impractical. What have you been up to in Paris? Have you seen the uh, Have you seen the Arc de Triomphe? Uh, yeah, no, yeah, done done a lot, mate. Done a lot. You seen the Triumph, Eiffel Tower? The Louvre, seen the, the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, I mean, it's all it's like a big monopoly board kind of of landmarks. It's all, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, been good, very good. I'm very tired though. I'm, I'm operating on about two hours sleep at the moment. <laughs> right. That's pretty normal then for you to come on the podcast. 
I saw you went to see Djokovic because I saw you posted a photo on Facebook of, of yeah. Djokovic from the stand. And to be honest, mate, I've hidden you now. Well, you actually sent me a text before you went away, out of nowhere, apoplectically angry about people posting statuses on Facebook about their holidays. And then, and then you've gone and done that. Well, no, no, it's good. Yeah, we got, yeah, watched, uh, watched Djokovic go for that. Uh, pretty good, pretty good match. We we uh, we were somewhat cursing a lot of the players. The first first match we saw, the first match we watched was Tomic uh, Aneski, uh, and then but Tomic I, I called the trainer and it looked like he was going to retire, so we left. Uh, and then we went down to watch Dimitrov versus Fire, uh, and Dimitrov Fire sorry retired injured. And then we saw Lou and Bellelli, and Lou caused the trainer uh, and was injured. So we left that match, and then we later found out that Bellelli had retired. Actually, ended up retiring in that game. Right. So, yeah, so it was, it was slightly absurd. And uh, some English people that we sat with literally were like, "Just go and spread your doom elsewhere." Uh, <laughs> so kind of indication of the level of negativity we were bringing to the court side. But everyone retiring injured. But, uh, but, well, you know, our luck changed. Djokovic didn't get injured. Win some, you lose some, I guess. <laughs> um, it's quite early in the morning here, Tane, just so you know the, uh, the the level of commitment that I've, <laughs> I'm putting in to get you on air here. It's quite a sociable hour here. By what? quite a sociable hour, it's an hour later. So. <laughs> it's a whole hour later. Where are you off to you now? You're not at work today. Uh, it's my morning off. Oh, nice. So I've sacrificed my lion. Uh, <laughs> in order to speak to you. Where are you off to now? Are you going to Portugal in a minute? Yeah, I'm going, going, yeah, going down to Porto. And are you going through security in a minute then? Uh, very, very soon, yeah. In which case, I should probably ask you about the cricket. Have you, have you been able to follow any of the cricket over there in Paris? They're not really into cricket, are they? Uh, yeah, no, I tried yeah, try to get them, in, get them involved, but they, uh, they're too busy smoking to uh, <laughs> take any notice of what I was saying. But yeah, uh, I, well, I followed glimpses of it. You know, uh, as we've we've talked about this before, that uh, France are, of course, the reigning Olympic silver medalists in cricket um, from the 1900 Olympics, I think. So you should have just been going on at them about that. Well, exactly. It's part of their heritage, and they just don't seem to understand. <laughs> on that front, my mission has failed. Yeah, but it was very yeah. much... It was a fact-finding mission for the World Cricket Show, wasn't it, that you were out there for? Well, exactly, yeah. It's kind of turned into... I've basically more been sampling there, like macarons and... Sounds great. I wish I'd come uh, with you. But I feel like I, I feel like I've missed out on the uh, the Willis three. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say. I mean, I know you haven't really been able to follow uh, or see much of the cricket, but yeah, even though England won, there's been an awful lot of criticism over here directed at uh, Alistair Cook and Andy Flair not enforcing the follow-on, batting on too long, not setting attacking enough fields. Willis is fuming, Tony. He is absolutely fuming. Both of them as well. What what do you make of that criticism? Just you know, given that England won the game, is it pretty harsh to to criticise them, or did they sort of miss an opportunity to be ruthless? Do you think cricket team should always be as ruthless as possible? Yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, it's not something that's about new. Is it of Strauss or some criticism? You know, when he was captain for that sort of thing, 
Uh, I don't know. I mean, there was a lot of rain around, wasn't there? So probably in that sense, better to have gone all out for victory. I mean, yeah, in the end they did get it, but yeah, I, I think probably both of them were to correct. But then the the counter argument to that though is that you know, in, firstly that England did win the game in the end, so his tactics were kind of vindicated. But also, you know, let's remember that the entire first day was lost to rain. You know, most of the final day was going to be lost to rain. To to have New Zealand six down in the fourth innings of the match or, at the end of what was essentially the third day, I don't know if you can really have too many complaints about that. I can understand being annoyed if you don't enforce the follow-on, you have negative tactics, bat on too long, and there are five full days of play and you fall like one wicket short. Like, that's bad captaincy. But when you only get three and a bit days, to pull off any kind of win, I think, is quite impressive. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And given the... Uh, you know, given the way the matches against New Zealand have gone this year, uh, you know, it's not been an easy, easy task for England to, to get victories. So, yeah, it's a good achievement. And a, a, a 2 0 series win, can't we argue with that at all, any? But, yeah, I don't know. Not enforcing the follow on, you know, it's not something I'd ever do on cricket captains. So, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's where decisions are tested. That's very much where you learned your trade. <laughs> exactly. That's where I've developed my very particular captaincy skills of pressing the space bar repeatedly. I think, though, I do think it's setting, like, impossibly high standards from the commentators. Like, Agnew was fuming as well. He wasn't fuming, but he, was, he wasn't angry. He was just disappointed. But, like, there's this attitude almost of, like, yeah, sure, England have won this game by 250 runs, but that won't be good enough in the Ashes. Like, <laughs> yeah, I feel, I feel sorry for Jonathan Agnew's wife. This lasagna is quite nice, darling, but it won't be good enough when Michael Clark comes to dinner. Like, <laughs> you know, what? I don't know quite what they want. Oh, well, I, hope, I, I really hope you've, uh, yeah, you've kept me a nice kind of summary or a little kind of montage highlights package of Willis's tirades. Yeah, actually. Is he really, is he really been losing it? I actually have. He threatened to, um, I'm going to play this clip on the show. He threatened to uh, set up three sets of stocks, one for Andy Flower, one for Alistair Cook, one for Jonathan Trott. And he was going to go down, go down and throw tomatoes at them if England hadn't won the game. He's guilty of it as well, sort of saying like, "Oh, they, you know, they can't be doing this in the ashes." And that was very much Botham's thing. Was like, "Well, you know, th- this way, this really will not be acceptable in the ashes." But actually, you've got it. Like, think about the whole situation. If the situation was the same in the ashes, i.e., England are one nil up in the series in the final game with a massive first innings lead. They wouldn't enforce the follow-on. They'd bat again. They'd bat on and on. And if it's the final game of the series and you're 1-0 up in the Ashes, you just bat them out of the game. And the commentators would be saying they were doing exactly the right thing. England were sort of just making sure they got the series win before they did anything else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to argue against that point, I think. I don't, I, maybe it's just that Bosom and Willis kind of get all heads up and you know, they've got a very different memory of what it was like when they were playing. But certainly, that would be the first to point the finger if it went the other way. Absolutely, I think you're just too easily persuaded by both of them, Willis. Then I think I'm too. Yeah, I just, you know, I just want to be. I want to be my friend. <laughs> you want to impress them. You're hoping yeah, they're listening exactly. to this. I want, I want, oh yeah, exactly. If they're hearing this, you know. <laughs> do you agree with both of them? Saying, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree with him about almost anything out of politeness. <laughs> um, well, I can let you go to um, go through security if you need to. Bloody, uh, bloody queues in uh, airport security tone, am I right? Yeah, am I right? Yeah, not too bad. We're just making the most of the uh, outside departure lounge, but we've brought you some tea, Adam. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, so we, uh, someone, another in the party, Patrick. Ah, okay. Purchased you some tea. I've not got you anything. I was so. running through all the people that are there with you and thinking, who's bought me a present here? Like, no one's generous enough for that. Well, I was going to bring you something back from Portugal. Okay. I was like, I don't know, like a you know, half of period three chicken or something. Yeah, I don't eat meat now. They turned off. Oh, so. I'll have it for you. You can look at it. <laughs> I'll present it to you in this kind of ceremony, and then I'll just eat it. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, be sure to note down any observations you have about airline travel. Uh, <laughs> oh, I will. I'm very good. Thanks for them. And you can bring those next week. Okay. Well, have fun in Portugal, Tony. Oh, God. Oh, he knows all the lingo, doesn't he? Uh, Portuguese. <laughs> so anyone you need bon dia as well. That means hello. Or piri, piri. Good day, piri piri. Bon dia, <laughs> piri piri, obrigad. Like that's all you need. <laughs> yeah, just like simple. In that uh, order. Well, look after yourself, mate. I will, mate. I'm gonna. I might go back to bed in a minute, to be honest. Anyway, uh, all right. Yeah, safe Good journey. Course. Enjoy Porto. Yeah, yeah. Merci beaucoup, obrigad, and all that. All right. uh, yeah, cool. Give me a shout. All right. See you later. See you later, mate. Bye. Bye. Well, I, th- I suppose the, the ultimate question here is, are England that fussed about winning this Test match? If they don't, they take the series 1-0, happy days, mission accomplished. Are they really bothered about making it 2-0? Because if they do did want to make it 2-0 without a doubt, they would surely have approached life differently. Well, they should have done. They need to be ruthless. You know, we're not allowed to mention the Ashes or the England team aren't, but uh, that's what this is about it's a prelude to the ashes England need to be ruthless they should have enforced the follow-on they should have bowled New Zealand out by now and, and won the match in three days if the weather comes to New Zealand's rescue tomorrow Charles there should be three sets of stocks in the town square in Leeds one for Andy Flower one for Esther Cook and one for Jonathan Trott and a great big barrel of rotten tomatoes to hurl at them a big obrigad to Tony for taking time out of his holiday to come on the show. I think I won him over as regards all the follow-on stuff, wouldn't you agree? He'd never admit it because, you know, he wouldn't like to think that he has been won over by me and also because he's still trying to impress Willis and Botham all the time. I'm kind of the opposite, I think, in that for me, whatever Ian Botham says, the reverse is probably correct. Um, but anyway... I think I may have won him over. It's quite an interesting debate that's been going on, I think. Uh, and by interesting, I mean infuriating. Uh, England have been somewhat prickly in their post-match media work. Trot had quite a spiky interview with Ian Ward on Sky. Uh, Andy Flower was pretty annoyed, I think, with Jonathan Agnew on the BBC. And I'm not sure that you can blame him for being angry, really. I mean, as I say, I, I don't know what more these journalists want England to do. I'm, I'm quite baffled at all the negativity. It's it's another example, I think, of, of a feeling in the commentary box, in the press box, kind of taking on a momentum of its own. And the media starts reporting on the media, starts reporting on the, the mounting criticism and the growing calls, uh, which basically just means they're all having a chat amongst themselves and, and then they start reporting on that. It's actually mildly disgraceful, I think, Agnew's line of question. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The headline of his article on BBC Sport was Tetchy England shows signs of tension. Uh, and he just goes on to accuse Flower of being too defensive. And really, that whole article is just an exercise in defensiveness from Jonathan Agnew about his own journalism, about his own line of questioning. I fully understand the reasons why England didn't enforce the follow-on. If the rain hadn't come on the final day, and they'd enforce the follow-on and New Zealand had batted much better, there's a slim possibility that they could still have lost the game. By choosing to bat again, they were eliminating any possibility of defeat, and thus securing the series win and I think it's very sensible that you get the series in the bag first and then you worry about 2-0. It's also probably worth remembering that in ordinary circumstances the follow-on wouldn't have been an option. The first innings lead was less than 200 which is normally the the follow-on cut-off in test cricket. It was only because the whole of the first day was washed out and therefore it became a sort of de facto four-day game that the follow-on margin was reduced to 150. This is actually something I didn't know about test cricket that yeah if you if you lose a whole day's play then the follow-on margin goes from 200 to 150 so had the first day not been washed out obviously it would have been a different game but had it not been washed out Cook wouldn't have had to make this decision at all because he wouldn't have been able to to make them bat again I'm not saying that England couldn't have done things better um, they could certainly have got on with things a bit quicker on Sunday evening Compton's scratch innings you can understand because he's so out of form but Trot who's clearly in form and also very secure of his place in the team, could definitely have batted with a, a bit more urgency. Um, and if it had rained all day on Tuesday and England hadn't gone on to win the game, then it would have been disappointing and you would have looked at that trot innings and thought, well, you know, you should have got on with it a bit more. But what I'm saying is that if you came at this test blind, not knowing the result, and just read the headlines and the opinion pieces and got a sense of what the commentators were talking about, you'd probably be quite surprised to learn that England had won the game by 250 runs inside three and a half days of play. What more is it that these commentators want? Some huge positives came out of this game for England. Obviously, Joe Root scoring his maiden Test Match 100 on his home ground uh, was the most eye-catching one. And that really was, it was a fantastic innings because they were difficult conditions to bat on Saturday. There's no doubt whatsoever that he's going to get many, many more Test 100s. He just increasingly looks like a special player in the making. You can see why Graham Thorpe has been so excited about him for so long. 
Johnny Bairstow made runs as well. He endured quite a difficult winter in the international side. Definitely the most fluent innings he's played for England since last summer. Throwing his hat into the ring for Ashes selection, undoubtedly. Uh, Cook scored 100 as well. Arguably the most routine of his 2500s up to this point. Indeed, it's been all but forgotten already. You know, he was never in the frame for for man of the match, um, even though he scored the highest innings of the game by some distance. It just seemed inevitable that he was going to get 100. As soon as he got to about 40, he thought, well, this is another 100. And it was. There's some very good bowling from every member of the England attack. Uh, maybe the most pleasing thing, I think, for England uh, was that the two bowlers who did all the damage at Lords, Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad, were perhaps a touch more subdued here. Not that they bowled badly. Broad got rid of McCullum twice more, including through an incredible catch off his own bowling in the second innings. So he got McCullum all four times in this series. But it was Finn and Swan that were the most impressive. Finn bowled with genuine pace. An absolute brute of a delivery to get rid of Dean Brownlee in the second innings. Rearing up at his face and Brownlee sort of fended it off to uh, to Gully. He did not look like someone you would want to face. He was, he was coming in off his long run-up again. And it, it would seem that um, that short run-up in test cricket at any rate has, has been a bit of a failure. He now looks much more like his old self than he did uh, in New Zealand when he was coming in off the short run. Uh, and Swan was absolutely terrific. Ten wickets in the match. The first spin bowler to do that at Headingley since 1972, which is obviously a long time. 41 years, if you want me to do the math for you. So we're talking something that no one's done since before Thatcher, since before Britain joined the EU. You know, it, it, it's a long time. And aside from the, the number of wickets he took, he just bowled really, really well. The, the two deliveries in the first innings to get rid of Brownlee and Guptill spinning back through the gate to hit the top of off stump. It just doesn't get any better than that. I mean, it wasn't great technique from the batsman. They did leave that gate for the ball to go through. But nonetheless, it was brilliant to watch. I was, I was very excited at that point. Uh, yes, the pitch was giving him a bit. And he had the foot marks created by the New Zealand left armers to exploit as well. But he did exploit them fantastically well. And him coming back to form is a huge boost for England. There were certainly worries about whether he would ever get over this elbow injury when he went off for surgery. You know, he had sort of flashbacks of a, a Simon Jones or an Andrew Flintoff. But he seems to be over it. He says he's playing without pain now, which is the first time for several years. And, you know, you'd think that he's probably going to be England's main weapon in the Ashes. Australia have a lot of left-handers, a lot more left-handers than New Zealand do. They will be worried about Graham Swan. They'll be very worried indeed. Speaking of the Ashes, as we will be for the next eight months, um, I'd suggest that England are now sure of 10 of the 11 names that will play in that first test at Trent Bridge, assuming that everybody is fit. I think Steve Finn has eased himself clear of Tim Bresnan in this series. The only question mark is over Nick Compton. This is another thing that everybody's writing about. You know, when, when, when most of the team is playing well, you really do, as a pundit, have to kind of zero in on uh, the one or two guys that aren't. So Compton is inevitably under scrutiny. And it, it was another poor game for him here after a poor game at Lourdes as well. We talked at length about Compton last week. I said I thought it was absurd that the knives were already out for him, given that he scored 200s in New Zealand. And I stand by that. I, I think it's very unfair that he's coming in for so much criticism, that he's being talked about as though he's a, a lame duck at the top of the order. A Barack Obama figure. Am I right? Am I right? Oh, satire. Um, no, I do think it's unfair. I think, you know, if, if the next test wasn't an Ashes test, if they were just playing Sri Lanka or Pakistan or West Indies, 
he'd definitely get more time. He's He's got enough credit in the bank that he'd get more time. I suppose, understandably, everyone is much more frantic than they would be if, if those were the circumstances. He would also get more time if he wasn't an old man, if he wasn't a 29-year-old old man. Um, you know, I, I do think that, that players get much more leeway from the public and from the media if they're 20. It's this thing of, you know, if he's young enough, he's good enough. Well, I don't know if that's quite true. I mean, Joe Root had a pretty poor series in New Zealand, but no one suggested dropping him. But Compton has a couple of bad test matches and it's, you know, well, we've got to, we've got to find someone better than this. I mean, in fairness, it does have to be said that he looks really out of form. It's not just that he's not scoring runs. It's that he's looking terrible while not scoring runs. He's not middling anything. His head is moving all over the place when the ball is delivered. I think it's a mental thing. I think the problem is that he just wants this too bad. He knows he's not guaranteed a place for the Ashes and he's so desperate to get one that it's messing with his mind. He needs to find a way to relax because, you know, all aspiring test batsmen want to play an Ashes test more than anything else. You've got to find a way to not let it affect you. What would probably help him is if the England selectors came out and said that he was definitely going to play because that would enable him to uh, to relax, to play with a bit more freedom. But they don't seem prepared to do that. So you know, he's got some first class games for Somerset now uh, and they're really important for him, particularly um, the one against the touring Australians in a few weeks time. He badly needs to find some form uh, and you know it, it, you'd think it's a good thing that he's got these first class matches coming up but he would probably rather be playing one day cricket for England I mean it, it's definitely true that even though the format is different if you can just score runs for England rather than your county that counts much more you know if Johnny Bairstow has a good champions trophy that makes a much more significant impact on the public consciousness probably on the consciousness of the selectors as well than Compton scoring runs for Somerset could ever do. Anyway, I hope that he does come back into form because I like him. I think he's a fine batsman and he, and he seems like a nice bloke as well. And I, I'd, I'd love it if he opens up for England in the Ashes and does well. As for New Zealand, a series that started out in quite encouraging fashion rapidly became pretty disappointing. Despite playing pretty well for most of the Lord's Test, they, they've suffered two pretty heavy defeats here. I mean, clearly the, the main problems lie in the batting department. Their bowling attack has actually been pretty impressive, I think. I'd suggest that this is the best New Zealand seam attack for a long time. Tim Southey was terrific. Uh, and Trent Bolt was as well, especially in that first innings at Headingley, um, where he got those five wickets. They really need to find a spinner. Bruce Martin was decent in New Zealand, but he's never going to rip through lineups in the way that, that you know your Swans or your Ajmals can. Not many bowlers are able to do that. Sometimes you just need a, a, a containing spinner. But the jury's out on whether he's he's the man for that role either. But yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the batting where the big issues are. Ross Taylor was very good, but that's about it. Peter Fulton and Hamish Rutherford, who did so much damage in New Zealand, who caused so much pain for England, that, that magnificent big hundred from Rutherford in Dunedin and then those twin centuries from Fulton in Auckland. They were fantastic there, but they were worked out by England a bit here, I think. Arguably the biggest problem was that McCullum had an awful series with the bat. 31 runs in four innings, as I say, dismissed by Stuart Broad every time. England kept him quiet as a church mouse, and that had a massive impact on both the side's output in terms of runs and also on their confidence. I mean, if, if Brendan McCullum goes out and blazes a quick fire 60 or 70, that, you know, presumably... <laughs> gives a lot more confidence to everyone else to, to play with a bit more freedom. But yeah, they just weren't able to, to post the scores that they needed to. I think 220 was their, their highest score in the series. 
it's tough to know what to suggest, really. They're just lacking at least one, if not two, world-class batsmen. And, and that's what they need if they're going to become serious Test match contenders. It's not an easy thing to find, especially at short notice. But I have really enjoyed watching New Zealand in these five Test matches. They're, a, they're an admirable side, if I can say that without being patronising. And they have been much better than I think most people expected them to be. But anyway, as far as England are concerned, you know, all in all, I think it was a pretty professional display from them in this series. A solid 8 out of 10. Definitely back on track after not quite being at the races in New Zealand. Uh, and with only one or two exceptions, every member of the side contributed to this result. Virtually all the wheels are turning going into the Ashes. If they perform at this level across those five Ashes tests, you'd expect them to be too strong for the Aussies. If England play to their potential... They're just a better cricket team than Australia. So on this evidence, it would be hard to argue that they're not favourites for that series. It's not as straightforward as that, but they're definitely favourites. And if we have a look at the Ashes countdown clock, there are 42 days to go until Trent Bridge. It's pretty bloody exciting, isn't it? The IPL staggered to an end on Sunday. It was the Mumbai Indians who ran out the winners for the first time. Uh, they beat Chennai Super Kings in the final. Kyron Pollard was very much the star of the show with the bat, uh, smashing an unbeaten 60. So yeah, after Kolkata Knight Riders won it for the first time last year, now Mumbai Indians following suit this year. It's been quite hard work this season of the IPL. Even more hard work than usual, I would suggest, what with all the spot-fixing allegations and, and everything. I suspect that even the organisers might be glad that the season's over which is not something I ever thought I'd say, but it, it does sort of give them a, a chance to regroup before next year. And there is a lot of investigating that needs doing. Really need to get to the bottom of all this spot-fixing stuff. Does it just stop with these specific players? I would suspect no. Need to try and identify all the people at the edges of the game that are, that are involved, that are, that are luring players into this sort of thing. Root and branch is the expression that comes to mind. There needs to be a, a real deep investigation but anyway, in cricket terms at least, congratulations to Mumbai. Uh, very much the last team standing in every sense. I think it was fitting that Kyron Pollard uh, should play such a decisive hand in the final. He's one of the IPL's biggest stars. His star was very much forged in the IPL, wasn't it? it, it I mean, he's not really done that much in international cricket by comparison, but he's been enormously successful in the IPL. and So yeah, it was probably fitting that he should play such a big part. But that's it for another year. That's also it for this episode of the World Cricket Show, or almost. Before I go, I just want to read some of your tweets. At Paisley Dalgleish uh, wants to know predictions for top Ashes wicket takers and run scorers for both sides. Uh, you're not going to get me yet, I'm afraid. I'm going to keep my cards close to my chest for a little while longer. We'll be doing a huge Ashes preview at some point, I'm sure, and all questions like that will be answered. We'll we'll give predictions for all that sort of thing. Gary Rich, just wanting me to give a quick plug for GR7 Cricket Bats, which is a bat made in Guernsey, where the World Cricket Show is based, as listeners know. Uh, and it's used by many of Guernsey's top stars, including the captain, Jamie Nussbaumer. And it's a great bat. If you go to gr7cricketbats.co.uk, have a look at that. You can purchase them from there. Uh, they're all individually handmade. So if you want to emulate your Guernsey cricket heroes... Uh, that's the place to go. And one more tweet from Alex Woodcraft. He says, how about discussing dropping Bell rather than Compton or Bairstow if KP returns? It's an interesting point, actually. 
it's kind of gone a bit under the radar, Ian Bell's struggles. He, he was on top of the world in 2011, conquering all before him. Uh, averaged over 100, I think, that year. But then the wheels very dramatically came off in the UAE against Pakistan. Since the start of that series, he's averaging 32 in 19 tests, which isn't awful, but it's, you know, it's no better than average. He's only scored one century in those 19 games. He averaged 28 in these five tests against New Zealand, which isn't really good enough for a test match number five batsman. And those figures are certainly a bit worrying because Ian Bell at his best makes England a much better side. And consequently, Ian Bell not at his best makes England a worse side. I mean, it's not time to, to axe him just yet or anything like that. Um, he's still contributing. You know, even if we look in, in the winter, he had a few pretty poor games, but he did hit a vitally important century in Nagpur to make sure that England didn't lose that game. He also struck a series-saving 70 in Auckland. I mean, people talk about Matt Pryor's 100 um, on the final day there, and obviously that was vitally important, but Bell actually batted substantially more time and more balls than Pryor, which is actually the thing that England needed, not, not the runs. So Bell was, to a large extent, the true hero in that game. So he has played some incredibly important innings for England, even while not performing at quite the level that he was a couple of years ago. But... Alex does raise a legitimate point here, I think. When we say that England's only concern going into the Ashes is competent, that's probably not quite true. There are reasons to be a bit concerned about Ian Bell. But even in this time, he's still been doing very well in one-day cricket. And with a lot of one-day cricket to come between now and the Ashes, including, of course, the Champions Trophy, that might be a, a great arena for him to find some form. But anyway, yeah, that's about it, I think. This has been episode 184 of the World Cricket Show. Apologies that the format's been a little off again this week. I know it's much more fun when there are two of us here. Um, in theory, we should be pretty much set for the summer now, I think. I don't believe that either of us have plans to go away for any length of time, uh, as far as I know. Anyway, so with a bit of luck, this should be the last time you've got to put up with just me for a while. Again, as I always say when it's just me, if you're a new listener, I definitely recommend going through our back catalogue. Uh, and listening to some of the old episodes, arguably less relevant cricket-wise, uh, but possibly more entertaining. But yeah, Tony will be back next week. Between now and then, if you want to get more involved in the World Cricket Show, there are a number of different things that you can do. You can tweet all over us on Twitter, at Cricket Show. You can tweet all over Tony, at Tony Covert, T-O-N-Y-C-V-R-R. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash cricket show. Click the like button there. If you want to buy some World Cricket Show shares... Have a look at the FTSE 100 index. You can write a review for us on iTunes if you've got a bit of time and you feel like doing something nice. We do really appreciate all of those. Send us an email, worldcricketshow at gmail.com. Even though we're massive celebrities, we do reply to emails. That's the kind of guys we are. Uh, and if you have a look at our online website, www.cricketshow.net, uh, you can listen to the show on there and you can also purchase your World Cricket Show t-shirt for just £15, which includes free shipping to anywhere in the world. But that's it for this week. Stay in school, everybody. Have a great week. Enjoy the one-day cricket that's uh, about to start. We're going to do a Champions Trophy preview next week. Uh, we're also going to be setting up a Champions Trophy Fantasy League. Uh, this is something we've done for the World 2020 in the past. We've done for the World Cup in the past. Um, it's always a lot of fun so keep your eyes on Facebook and on Twitter and we'll let you know what's going on and we'll also talk about it next week so you can sign up uh, but until next time for the World Cricket Show I'm Adam Bayfield Good night, and remember the truth is out there
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 